Well, if you are brand new to Grace Community Church, um, those two guys that were singing about Genesis, we have no idea who they are. Um, that's actually Rhett and Link. They both grew up in this, um, this church, and they, both, they have quite an international following now. They're out in Hollywood <clears throat> doing that kind of stuff on the street corners, you know, trying to... <laughs> I don't know where they're sleeping, but anyway. Um, no, that was great, wasn't it? I think they did that in connection with Phil Vischer, you know, who did the uh, VeggieTales, right? And uh, so that was uh, a, quite a good introduction to Genesis. And if you are just here for the first time, we, we are beginning a study in Genesis. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about this. Um, we're going to be spending about seven weeks in the first three chapters, and then we're going to take off, okay? It's kind of like a jet engine, you know, just sitting on the edge of the runway, and we're going to be building, 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 and then it's going to take flight. Actually, there is so much that's so important in these first three chapters. We're going to spend a lot of time there. As you can see from the, from the slide, we're only going to spend uh, today in three verses in, in, in Genesis. We'll be looking in the New Testament some as well, but it's an exciting time. i my head was about to explode this week as I was studying uh, Genesis and preparing not only for today but for the whole, the whole, um, the whole time together. And we're going to be spending some concentrated time uh, this week also sharing together about uh, all there is to see in Genesis. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Those are profound words, are they not? Think about them. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I have to ask you, what is your context for hearing those words? Are you a believer? A skeptic? An atheist? One who believes in a creation that God brought about in this world, the, the, the universe, that He brought about this universe, and yet still you believe in evolution to think that He used evolution to accomplish his plans? Are you a young earther, an old earther? What is your context for hearing the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? In order to get close to the meaning of these words or understanding what God is trying to say to us today, we have to, first of all, determine who were the first people to hear that verse, those beautiful words. Words. What were the circumstances of the people who first heard them? Who wrote Genesis? Now, over and over we're told in the New Testament that the law was written by Moses. The law, which is just one of the designations for Genesis, was written by Moses. I, I believe that. Like I said last week, perhaps there are some editors who, who helped. Well, certainly there were editors who helped. They compiled his thoughts. But Moses is the author of not only Genesis, but the first five books of the Bible known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. Torah is the Hebrew designation. It means instruction or law. Pentateuch is from the Greek and it means five-volumed. Book is assumed. Uh, Both of these terms, Torah and Pentateuch, are significant in our study of Genesis. Because Genesis is only one part of a whole. In fact, Jews speak of the Torah as five-fifths of the law. Pretty interesting 
designation. Five-fifths of the law. You know the first five books of the Bible, so say them with with me. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then, as we all know, that Bert thinks Amos ought to be in there somewhere, but, you know, it's not. I asked one day, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And everybody was saying it, and Bert said Amos, and I thought that was really funny. So Genesis is not only the foundation of the entire Bible and the anchor of the Old Testament, but it must be read in conjunction with the four books that follow it. Put that out of the way. And it provides instruction for all who would know this Creator God. We're going to talk more in the coming weeks, and in fact, I'm going to say that two or three times today. Is this is foundational. We're going to talk more in the coming weeks about the connection that Genesis has, not only with the Pentateuch, but for the, with the rest of the Bible as well. Uh, but we still haven't answered the question, who were the first people who heard the words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Now, if Moses wrote the book, then the first people who heard these words would have been the Israelites. And we know that they had to be, it had to be after they came out of Egypt. Uh, it, it was written to God's covenant people. It's a wonderful sound of that when you understand those words. God's covenant people. Who were these people? Well, for starters, they were slaves who had recently, be freed, had, had recently been freed. It's just going to be one of those days, I can see. Had recently been freed, and they didn't know if they wanted to be free. I mean... Who wouldn't want to be freed from slavery? Well, you've never been a slave, so you can't really know what that's like. I mean, there was some security in being a slave. If you did what you were told to do, you had all the food that you needed, all your provisions were taken care of, life was certain, and you, if you did what you were supposed to, that you were pretty well left alone. The, the Jews, of course, had moved to Egypt some 400 plus years before during a famine. And life was good at first because Joseph, one of the 70 who ended up in, in Egypt, was the second most powerful man in all the land, second to Pharaoh. But as you know, as soon as Joseph died, the Egyptians were a little alarmed at the growth of the, the Jewish nation. And so they said, look, we better get a hold on this, and they enslaved them. So for 400 years, they lived as slaves. And history was passed down, don't you imagine, during that time, from generation to generation. But, but probably just about the best that they could do was to tell bedtime stories. And, and, and surely the Jews knew about Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob and, and all of the women, you know, Rebecca and Rachel and Leah. And yet... It must have seemed to these people like folklore, like, well, that's just kind of, really, I mean, I understand that's where we came from, but does it really matter? I mean, look at our lives today. Uh, I doubt that these people sensed any official connection with God. In fact, they lived in a polytheistic world, and everyone around them believed in multiple gods uh, in, during that day, and, 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 and pretty much everybody thought, well, if our God is stronger than your God, then we'll defeat you. So, what did that say about Israel's God? Not, not too much. Uh, in fact, Moses met with the leaders of Israel, and he said, now look, I've got to tell you, our God, 
Yahweh, he told me that his name is Yahweh, has come to me out in the wilderness near the mount, mountain of, of Horeb. And, and, and he told me that I'm to come down here and tell Pharaoh that he's got to let us go. And so, all of a sudden, there's a little bit of hope amongst the Jewish leaders. And they say, okay, you go as our representative. And you talk to Pharaoh and tell him to let us go into the wilderness so that we can worship Yahweh. But Pharaoh subscribed to the my God is stronger than your God kind of theory. And he said, really? You're kidding, right? I'm Pharaoh! And you are slaves! Get out of my sight! Everybody's awake now, I'm sure. And furthermore, supervisors, they're too idle. They want to go worship the Lord. Give them something to do. Now, this did not endear Moses with the leaders of Israel because all of a sudden their life was much more difficult. But you know the rest of the story, don't you? God defeated the gods of Egypt. Yahweh defeated the gods of Egypt. Many of the plagues were a direct hit on their gods. And he brought them out of Egypt with riches that the people of Egypt had been led to give the people of Israel. And they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. And when the Egyptians followed, Pharaoh had changed his mind by this time. And when they followed, the waters came over them. And do you know what? The Jews were asking, Who is this God? Who is this God that has defeated Egypt and all of its power and all of the gods of Egypt? And Moses said, Well, okay, let me tell you. And that's why Genesis was written. How did Moses begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the world. The, the earth. In fact, let's begin our time together from here from, for the rest of the time. If you'll stand. And if I can get through this this morning, somebody might have to lead me off, you know. Um, <clears throat> let's read the first three verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Father, when we acknowledge you as the Creator God, and also the God who has redeemed us through Jesus, our hearts are grateful and our hearts soar as we think about this awesome creation. Father, I pray that as we consider the very beginning of time as we know it, that you would grow larger in our hearts and minds. We know you through Jesus, in whose name that we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. So the big question for the Jews was, who is this God? And some of you may have a question of your own. Why did we begin our study in Genesis last week in Colossians chapter 1? 
Well, as we affirmed last week, what we have known for a long time, all Scripture and indeed all of creation points to Jesus. Everything is pointing to Jesus. And after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can never again look at any of Scripture without understanding the role that God had intended for Jesus all along. The Old Testament is a promise waiting to be fulfilled. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. In fact, we're going to end our time today in John 1. We've already seen that during our worship time, and we're going to spend more time in John 1, which presents Jesus as the Word of God. Uh, Another reason we're going to spend a great deal of time thinking about Jesus is that we first know God as Redeemer. We know Him as God. We know God as Redeemer before we know Him as Creator. Now, that might, if you think about it, be a little bit confusing. You might say, well, now, wait a minute. I believed in God for a long time before I ever put my faith in Jesus. But you didn't know, you didn't know the same God that you know now. The God of Genesis 1 is the God of of John chapter 1, who is Jesus and who initiates a covenant relationship with you. So we don't know Him fully as Creator until we know Him as Redeemer. Creation speaks of His name. We're held accountable. But we don't know Him unless God initiates a relationship with us through Jesus Christ. So again, who is this God? Well, He identifies Himself in Genesis 1-1 through Moses as Elohim. The name that God uses when identifying with His people is Yahweh, but that name doesn't come until Genesis 2-4 in, in, in Scripture. And the people of Israel don't hear it till much, much later when God comes to Moses in Exodus 3 and then He comes back in Exodus 6 after the debacle with Pharaoh and He says, I want to, man, Moses says, why did you send me down here? The people are upset with me. Pharaoh's refusing me. He, he mocked me. It's ridiculous. What am I even doing here? And he said, I'm Yahweh. And we're going to hear more about that in the coming weeks. And it is amazing who this God is that initiates a relationship with us and, and did so with Moses and the people of Israel in that day and with us through Jesus. So what... Is the significance of Yahweh three weeks? We're going to talk about it when we get to the, to the message, the God who writes his own agreements. Uh, all of our messages in Genesis, in fact, are going to begin with the title, The God Who. Well, actually, the title is, is Genesis Gospel Origins, but then the subtitle is going to be The God Who. Today, it's The God Who Creates. Uh, we stole that idea from D.A. Carson's book, The God Who Is There. D.A. Carson stole that idea from James Montgomery Boyce, who stole it from somebody, I'm sure. Uh, all of our di- ideas, even the original ones, come from somewhere else, contradictory as that may sound. God, as He is presented in Scripture, has always existed. Everything that exists finds its origins in Him, which is not a justification for plagiarism. That's not what I'm saying. I have spent a lot of time through the years telling college students that Philippians 2.4 in the King James does not justify cheating. Look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So, that's not what I'm talking about. But none of our ideas are totally original. Everything 
originates with God. Everything comes from Him. The first chapter of Genesis sets the tone for all Scripture. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. God didn't use His covenant name Yahweh in the first chapter. He used the name Elohim, which simply means God, but it's in the plural form. So what does it mean that God's name is in plural form? Well, quite a bit, actually. I mean, we know for a fact that Israel believed intensely that there is only one God. Christians believe that there is one God as well. Israel's belief in one God distinguished them from all of the religions around them, all of the... Major religions of the day were polytheistic, and they believed in many different gods. So why is the name for the one God of Israel written in the plural? Well, Jews would say that it's a sign of majesty or respect. Uh, Since we read the Old Testament in light of Jesus, and again, we can never again understand Scripture apart from Jesus, then we recognize at the outset of Scripture that at the very least God is far bigger than maybe we thought that He was. We see the Trinity. Christians see the Trinity in this and and in several other things that we'll see in these first few chapters of Genesis. Uh, Martin Luther said that Genesis 1-1 informs us that everything there is was created by Elohim. And Hebrew scholars cluck their tongues, even conservative evangelical Hebrew scholars cluck their tongues and say, oh, if it were only that simple, Mr. Luther. And then they jump through several hoops and they say that Elohim means everything that is was created by, or Genesis 1-1 says everything that is was created by Elohim. Uh, The focus is on God in chapter 1 as it is throughout all Scripture. Without looking down at your Bible, how many times do you think Elohim is mentioned in chapter 1. I asked a pastor friend of, that, of mine that question. He said, three? I said, how about 32? 32 times Elohim's name is mentioned. He fills the first chapter. Genesis clearly tells us that God created the universe out of nothing. Now, in, in, again, in the, Moses' day, all of the creation stories involve battles between the gods and them creating the current universe out of material that already existed. But Genesis 1 tells us, although it's not in these exact words, the implication is clear that God created ex nihilo out of nothing, from nothing. God just spoke and all of a sudden, the universe is there. He, and then he filled up the earth just like his name fills the first chapter, 32 times, in fact. Everything that exists, exists because God created it. As we'll see, God is very comfortable in his universe, which would make sense, wouldn't it? I mean, deists believe that God set the world in motion and what? 
Then he just turned away, turned to more important things, and we're just here trying to figure out things and get by as best we can. Uh, Genesis tells an entirely different story. So how do you feel when God invades your world? When he finds himself comfortable in your immediate world, sometimes we're not comfortable because we're maybe around a group of people that don't believe in God and in fact actually mock us, especially when we, when we throw Jesus into the mix. A lot of people are comfortable with God today, but then when Jesus comes into the mix, it's like, now, wait a minute, you're talking about only one way to heaven. You're talking about a real exclusive judgmental condemnation type of religion. And I'm against that, but you know what? God is comfortable here. And those who know him should be comfortable as well. Look, if, if, we could, if only believers could see Jesus, if we could just see Jesus existed, you know, you see those movies where some, one person sees a spirit nobody else sees. What if we could see Jesus? Maybe we'd feel more comfortable because, look, you may not be able to see because you don't believe, but I can see. Well, what does it say about our faith and our belief, in, our belief in God, our belief in Jesus, our, our trust and our, our faith in the reliability of his word when we're just so uncomfortable? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without, without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, let's think about this expression, uh, over the, uh, the, the earth being without form and, and void. It's, it's an expression that I understand that our youth talk about quite a bit. It's in the, it's in the Hebrew, and it's called tohu vavohu. There are lots of different ways you could pronounce that. Don't try it if you, you know, uh, you can see I took Hebrew and I still have difficulty with it. Sean illustrates this concept, these Hebrew words, by talking about it being like a beach that a hurricane has visited and the, and the beach is just devastated with debris everywhere. The earth was a wasteland when it was first created. Allison and I had dinner this week with Autumn and her two children, Aaliyah and Eli, and uh, Aaliyah had read a book about Australia, and they talked about the outback, you know. And Autumn said, we want to go to Australia, but we don't want... But what do we not want to do? And Aaliyah said, we don't want to go to the desert. And that's sort of the picture that comes to my mind. The outback of Australia, when they're just it's just not much there. It's just a wasteland. That's what the earth was like when God first created it. But it's not as though God made a mistake or he was just getting his game on, so to speak. Um, It's much akin to a potter taking a a blob of clay and just throwing it onto the wheel, throwing it onto the table. And there it is. And there's this promise of a beautiful product down the road, but it's just not there yet. It's kind of like life, isn't it? Sometimes you look at life and it feels like it's just your, your, your life feels very barren and very much like a, a wasteland, but God's doing something. That's the way the earth was. And it was dark. But as Kent Hughes says, above the primeval chaos floated unalterable beauty. 
the Spirit of God moving and creation. And with God's Word, at God's command, just speaking the Word, light appeared. There are several patterns established right at the very beginning of Genesis that continue throughout the ages. Let's consider a few from these first few verses. First of all, life originates with God. We have no life, in fact, apart from God speaking into speaking that life into existence. A lot of people seek to get to God, to find a way to be rightly connected with God, but life always flows from God to us. You cannot make yourself better so that God will find you acceptable and give you eternal life. If life doesn't originate with Him in Jesus, we will not have eternal life. Our sin brings only death. So, therefore, the Creator entered His creation as a creature and lived this perfect life and died, which is the penalty for sin, so that we might have life. He died in our place, though He was sinless. And all who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus receive eternal life. Secondly, when God is at work, the the wasteland becomes fruitful. Aren't you glad that, that God isn't finished with you yet? That He's still working to conform you into the image of Jesus? You, you may feel like you're a long way from that right now. But if you belong to Jesus, He is working in your life. He's shaping and He's molding you to be who He wants you to be. And when you stand before Him, you will be perfect and complete. Third, God's Word is the first, last, and only authoritative Word in the universe. He created from nothing. And He did so with His Word. As we're going to see in just a few moments, God's Word is laden with grace. And so was the book of Genesis. In fact, the word grace could have very well found its way into the title of this series. Genesis is a book that is laden with grace. There is no doubt that God pronounces judgment on sin with His Word, and so it behooves us to get into the way of grace. The last pattern that's established here is that God's Word brings light and life. You remember what was happening over the land with Tohu Vavohu? When it was waste, the Spirit of God was hovering over it. He was ready to act. In fact, your life may be in one of the darkest places it's ever been. And the Spirit of God is hovering over your life, ready to act. And He spoke and light invaded the darkness. It's the establishment of a pattern that will continue until Jesus returns. God speaks and life and light appear. And when God is revealed as King over all creation in everybody's heart and mind, in everyone's heart and mind, there will be no more need for light. He will that light. So, 
since we can never again read after the resurrection, the, the Old Testament scriptures without Jesus in mind, I wonder as we have thought about Genesis 1, 1 to 3, if there were New Testament verses that, that, that came to your mind that speak truth about Jesus. I, I'm going to guess the answer is yes. And I want to start with just a couple of verses in 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. For what we proclaim, Paul is saying, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our hearts are dark without Jesus. And when God speaks into our hearts, then light appears. And as powerful as these verses are, I'm going to think probably that those are not the first verses in the New Testament that came to your mind when we were looking at Genesis 1. I'm going to imagine you were thinking about John 1. Uh, I'm going to read the entire introduction to John's Gospel, all 18 verses. I really wanted to just read the first four or five, camp out in them for a little bit, and then move on. But I'm just going to read with a little bit of comment here or there. But much of the application is going to be apparent, I think, for for you. And you're going to think about this in home group this week as well. Uh, In light of what we have learned in the very first verses of Genesis, hopefully this text is going to come alive in your heart and mind just as we read through it. Uh, if you're not familiar with this text, John 1, 1 through 18, let me just give you a heads up. In the very beginning, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, he tells us who this Word was. It's Jesus. So that'll be helpful at the start if you're not familiar with these words. Let's read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word. In other words, Jesus was and is God. The way that this verse is structured in the Greek... It means this, in the beginning, the Word was already in existence. Before creation was ever spoken into the world, it was, Jesus was already in existence. Now, one of the great heresies, really one of the awful, I should say, one of the awful heresies of the church that is that Jesus was created. There was a time when He was not Arius, the third and fourth century um, theologian, said he went badly off the rails. Actually, yeah, third and fourth century uh, theologian. And, and there are lots of groups that say the same today, including Mormons, including Jehovah's Witnesses. They say that Jesus was created by God. There was a time when he didn't exist. This verse, and this is one of the verses they'll use, and they'll say, hey, do you know the Greek? Well, let me tell you what the Greek says. The Greek is saying very emphatically, before creation ever existed, Jesus already did. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they'll talk to you about articles, definite article, indefinite articles in the Greek, 
Greek, Greek but I, I, I'm here to tell you, the Greek says it very emphatically, not the other way. They don't know what they're talking about. Think about the significance of Jesus being called Lagos, the Greek word for word. To the Greeks, Lagos was a rational principle by which everything existed and guided the universe. The Greeks were dualist and they drew a sharp distinction between the material and the immaterial. The material was bad. It was base at best, but it was just evil at its worst. And most Greeks just longed to escape the prison house of this flesh and, their, and let their spirits Soar. That's what Lagos meant to them. It's this rational principle that guides the universe. To the Hebrew, Lagos was more associated with rational thought and the spoken word. And, and, and maybe you don't get the significance of that right at the first, but, but think about it. Rational thought, the spoken word. Lagos was much more associated with creation. Lagos was not just some principle out there. It was in the middle of creation. So when John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Lagos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he goes on to say that that the Lagos is Jesus, he's saying something very significant about the creation. It's not the creation that's messed up. It's our sin that has messed up the creation. And God is going to do something about it. Just like He spoke the world into existence, He's going to do something about the the altered state, the the sinful, the, the destroyed state that we have caused by our sin. So, the world was brought into existence through the spoken word of the Word, who was Jesus, God in the flesh. But this Word speaks not only of creation, it speaks of redemption and judgment. So sooner or later, all of creation will have to deal with Jesus. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. thought about that last week. Jesus, our Creator. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Praise the Lord. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to bear witness about the light. And we have the same privilege that John the Baptist had. We get to bear witness about the light, not in the same way that he did, but with every bit as much effect. We bear witness about the light that shines into the darkness. But again, we just are so uncomfortable doing that. It's like, Oh, okay, look, I don't want to disturb your darkness. Don't disturb the darkness! I'm so sorry. I don't mean to be screaming as much as... Well, I meant to earlier. I didn't mean to that time, I, I should say. Disturb their darkness. It's darkness, for goodness sake. It's darkness. 
And we know the light. Introduce the light into their darkness. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. How sad not to know the Creator. Well, verse 11 is even more tragic. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. Yahweh introduced himself to Moses and said, I want you to introduce me to this people that I've called to be my own. And Jesus, God in the flesh, came to his people. And they didn't believe. That's astounding. They did not believe. This is one of those things about God being so much bigger than we are, than we make him who he wants to be. We are going to see over and over. We have already seen, if you've been in Scripture any time, you may have wanted to ignore it. But the fact is, if God does not give us life, we don't have it. And yet every one of us, because of creation, because of our conscience, certainly because of the Word and because of Jesus, we're all accountable to this God if we don't believe, and yet we're responsible. We are called to believe. Yet if we don't believe, there's judgment from the Word. And if He doesn't give us life, we will not believe. There's incredible news, though, as tragic as that is in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. You see that? But of God. In other words, your only hope of standing before, clean before your Creator is to believe in Jesus. Believe that He came to this earth because of your sin. And that He lived the life that you were incapable of. A life that God requires of all of us in order to stand before Him. And yet none of us are capable of living. So Jesus lived that life, thus becoming eligible as the perfect sacrifice. If God gives you the understanding to believe. And you know what? I don't know very many people at all who have the understanding that Jesus, that they get the gospel, that Jesus came to this earth to live, to live a perfect life and to die a death as a perfect substitute. I don't know many people at all that understand that, that don't then believe. If God gives you the understanding to believe, then the other part of the other requirement for salvation is going to be automatic repentance, where you change your mind about how it is you get to God and you recognize yourself and your sin and you confess to God that you are a sinner and that you stand in desperate need of Jesus to stand in your place. And when He does, and when you believe in that and you put your faith in Him, 
then verse 12 is true of you. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you've never done that, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, do not leave this morning without talking to me, one of our elders, one of our staff, anybody that you've seen up here, the person who brought you to church. Talk to some, any of us, any of us, and ask what it means. I'm, I'm trying to understand this. Please help me to understand this because God is speaking to you right now. And He wants you to come to Jesus. Now, down to verse 14, where the identity of the Word is revealed. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's talking about Jesus, of course. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The whole Gospel of John tells about this Jesus who is this God that we've been reading about in Genesis 1. It says that He tabernacled with us. You're going to talk about that in home group this week. What it means that Jesus pitched His tent, His dwelling with us. God is very much at the heart of His creation. Verse 15, John bore witness about Him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Don't be fooled, he said to the people, thinking that Jesus is, is younger than I am. He came way before me. He existed before time. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Again, we're going to see grace over and over in Genesis. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this more fully a little bit later, but Genesis almost has more to do with the New Testament than it does the Old Testament. And yet it is absolutely connected with the Pentateuch. It just flows right into the four verses or four books that follow Genesis. But there's grace all over it. And it points to Jesus, of course, because verse 17 tells us, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Aren't you glad that God has given His grace to you and revealed Himself to you through Jesus? It all started at creation. In the beginning, Elohim, the God who created everything that is, that exists. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray.